You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So, we're going to start with creation narratives, creation myths. So, in a time, in ancient times, when humanity was starting to, like, try to figure out why do we exist? Like, why are we here? There were plenty of creation stories being told. We know the story of Genesis, but there were others originating from this ancient Mesopotamian region, and I imagine it being around campfires or around wells or family gatherings where you would gather and you would talk and you would have um, our ancient ancestors would, would start this conversation and probably like, how about this weather? right? You're like, we're talking about the weather. We're t- you, you have that guy who's telling the stories, and it's like, like uh, and he's like, you just had to be there, right? You have the, the you had to be there stories. You had the, um, the younger generation sharing the latest clever memes. Maybe not. Um, you, you, had, uh, you had the dad jokes, you know, that guy with the dad jokes, of course. And then, and then the things get quiet, and they get, like, serious, and they get, like, really philosophical. And someone says, why? And everyone's like, why what? And he's like, why this, right? And they had to come up with, you know, and so, like, why this? And so someone would stand up, and they'd say, well, let me tell you the story of Marduk. He's the tallest and mightiest of the gods. And so, and, and then there was Tiamat, and, and Tiamat wanted to kill him because Tiamat and the other gods couldn't sleep. You know how you can't sleep and you get angry and you want to kill somebody? Tiamat, like, like, like Tiamat wanted to kill Marduk because Marduk was this god of the wind. And he was making it so windy that all the gods couldn't sleep. And so Tiamat gathers a group of gods and Marduk gathers a group of gods. And there's this epic battle. And Marduk, he blows in Tiamat's face and it makes her mouth open. You know, like when a dog sticks his head out the car window and like his lips and his tongue are flying everywhere? And pause, and somebody's like, what's a car window? And he's like, never mind. Uh, and so and that's not important. So anyways, he blows in her mouth, and her mouth opens, and he shoots an arrow down her throat, and it kills her. And so the first guy's confused, and he's like, so what does this have to do with this? And the guy's like, oh. Marduk then tears her body in half. So half of her body is the sky. Half of her body is the earth. And so, and, and so then he's like, well, okay, so that explains, like, the earth. How, how did, you know, humanity get here? Like, what about us? He's like, oh, yeah. So, so Mardu, uh, Tiamat's friend, Kingu, um, Marduk killed them too, and the blood of Kingu became humans. And because all the gods were hungry, they made humans slaves to do all the work that the gods would normally do, so the gods didn't have to do any more work, and they could just be lazy. That's the existence we have. We're just slaves to the gods who are lazy. Like, now, the empires where these stories were told, um, th- these were ruled by pharaohs and kings, and who, once they became the king, they were also deified. They were also became the god. And so they were the body of the god. They were the embodied version of the god. They were called the image of God. And both the kings and the gods, they were brutally violent. These deified kings, they had authority over everything. So when they spoke, things happened, right? They would say, build a palace for me to live in. Build a pyramid for me to live in after this life. And it would happen. They got to define good and evil. They were authority over this. So you would have this 
physical representation of the God in the form of a king. And then this deified king would build these statues, these idols of himself, with his face, with the God's body, right? Like an ox body um, with wings. And these statues uh, were called lamassus. Um, or you would have the Sphinx, right? We, we know the Sphinx by the pyramids, which is the God guarding the pyramids, with the Pharaoh's face. And so these idols that were made in the image of these gods and the king, they were huge and they were all over the place to remind you that this elite king was the image of God and you are not. So you better pay your taxes and make those sacrifices. So imagine the kind of culture this kind of creation narrative creates where conflict and violence and intimidation and power for the elite kings and everyone else was considered a slave. Imagine if this was the foundation, right? The answer to this question, why this? Of course, it's this tragic existence. It's living in fear and anxiety. It's participating in that violence and those power structures. It's grasping and gripping, which leads to more fear and anxiety and violence. And so then imagine there's this other group of people who had this different creation story. And this strange group of people, they weren't even allowed to make an image or an idol of their God. Which, by the way, image and idol, the word in Hebrew is salem, and it's translated both image and idol. So this group of people wasn't allowed to make images of idol of, or idols of their God because plot twist, this God already made images of himself. And so we're back around the campfire. Are you there with me? You got the how about this weather guy. You got the dad jokes. You got the memes. You got the stories where you just had to be there. You got this deep, serious moment. Why? Why what? Why this? And the wise elder appears front and center and recites this creation poem that we call Genesis 1. And it begins with a God who speaks and things happen. He defines it all as good as the poem goes along. There's no evil created. The language in the poem lets everyone know that this God is king because he speaks and it happens. And he's creating order and beauty and defining it as good. And this poem builds with this rhythm and this cadence and everything is created and separated, light from dark earth, from sky, land, from sea, and then filled with beauty and plants and animals. And each step of the way, this God, this king, says it was good. And everyone around the campfire knows this to be true. Right? They're, they're looking at the stars. They know the wonders and the beauty that are all around them. They're enjoying the company of one another. They're getting into the groove of this poem. And they're waiting for that next repeated line so they can all join together and saying it was good. And then at what should be the end of the sixth day, this poem has this breakdown. It has, the, the cadence changes, the rhythm stops, everyone leans in. And this God who is king says in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, let us, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on the earth. God created humanity in his own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. And so instead of 
creating idols and images of these human deified kings, this creation story, this God creates all humanity in his image. Instead of creating humans as slaves to satisfy God, this God invites humans to join him in the work of creation, to create more human flourishing, more beauty. All of humanity is invited into ruling over creation. You are created to rule, right? Like, oh, Doyle rules. Like, I, like sorry, that's a Billy, Billy Madison, anybody? Like Adam Sandler, Billy Madison. Oh, Doyle rules. Like, not just O'Doyle, all y'all. Like, you rule. You were created to rule with God. But not to rule over one another. In this creation narrative, there is no power structure where the few elite kings have all the power over the many. And the way that God rules, it's different, right? Like, and, and we must rule different, not with the threat of destruction, but with this invitation, this invitation to a task, right? God gives them a task. That when they did this task, they were putting on display this image of God. They were the image of God when they were joining God in this task. And so what's the task? Gardening, right? Taking what God creating, created good and to keep it moving forward. He invites us to innovate, right? To, to make creation its best that it can be. To make life the best that it can be. And humans have created some pretty cool stuff, right? Like, but we've also created some pretty destructive stuff. And so, so we can we can innovate, we can create, we can, we can move this garden into something more. Like, like we see all of these plants with food on them. Like, like, that's awesome. But what if we took the seeds from these plants and planted them in nice, neat rows and grew a lot really close to where we live? You could feed a whole community. Like, the garden could grow into a city. And as the story continues, we have God walking with humans in this garden. And as Fred has given us language in these past few weeks, this God is glad to be with them. It's very good. Day six ends. Right? The creator found joy in being with humanity, and humanity found joy in being with their creator. So comparing these creation stories, notice what the Genesis, Genesis account is missing. Right? Cre creation is not a result of violence between gods. There's no power structure. The call is not to dominate, to take over, to create an empire. It's to do the mundane, everyday human things that let life flourish. Eat, rest, work. Better yet, join God in the work to continue creation and improve humanity, improve human flourishing. Make more humans and more gardens, and more beauty, and more life. So can you imagine the kind of culture this story creates? No, neither could they, right? Because let's be clear, like, like these image bearers of God were not God. They weren't the creator and sustainer of life. There were things that only God, to do, God could do. They, there, there were jobs that God kept for himself like defining good and evil. But we see in chapter 3 that it all falls apart because we fall for the lie that God is holding out on us, right? We, we assume that this God is just like all the other gods. We assume that as image bearers of God that we can do whatever we want, just like these deified kings. And so 
we tried to take on a task that we weren't given, a task we weren't created to do. We tried to take on the role of defining good and evil, and God lets us make that choice, right? It's part of his love. It's part of our free will. But it broke the good and beautiful creation, and it broke the image of God in humanity to the point that God had to put into place a plan to fix it, to restore the image of God and humanity. And this plan, it's a long story. You can read the Hebrew scriptures. But it includes God coming down into creation in various ways. It's God entering into a covenant with Abraham. It's God wrestling Jacob and giving him the name Israel. It's God in the burning bush with Moses. It's God leading his people, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. It's God camping out in the tabernacle tent with the Israelites in the desert like we saw in the big idea. It's God establishing a community of people and giving them rules to follow that would create the kind of community that the garden should have become. Like no king, no power structures, rules like jubilee, which is the canceling of debt to make sure the ground stays level. There's even rules for gardening. They were to be a nation that blesses the world. Unlike other nations that bless themselves and destroy other nations. But they did the same thing. They did the same grasping and the gripping, failing over and over again, even asking God for a king like all the other nations. Again, assuming this God was like the other gods. What I want you to see is this repetition of God pursuing us, coming to us, and for us to recognize that this is all downward mobility for God. This is active, generous hospitality. This is leaving the comfort of the throne, not to conquer and destroy, but to love and restore. It's, it's for the original goal of continuing creation, continuing human flourishing. This movement from a high position to low position is a demonstration of who God is and who he wants us to be in order to restore his image in us. It's this counterintuitive move away from seeking our own comfort, our own success, our own flourishing, our own joy, and only finding those things when we seek that out for others, right? It's moving the opposite direction, away from my own flourishing, my own desire to rule over and desire to prop myself up and do what God does and what he created us to do as his image bearers moving into the broken, into the darkness, into seeking the good of others, even at the expense of self. We're to move toward the flourishing of humanity, even though it makes sense to us to preserve self, right? To to seek my own gain. The grasping and the gripping, gripping at the expense of other image bearers makes more sense than laying down my life for others. Finally, this God puts on skin in the person of Jesus, who is said to be the exact image of God. He shows us how to be human, how to be image bearers of God. And it looks like serving others, healing the brokenness, loving even our enemy because they are the image of God too. Right? It looks like confronting these systems of injustice that we've created by living into those other creation stories. 
Jesus talks about this kingdom of God, and it's an invitation back into ruling with him. God shows us the way by lowering himself, becoming human, serving, loving, the last, the least, the left out. He, he washed feet, and ultimately he suffered the torture and the violence of the cross, and he absorbed it. He didn't return violence for violence. He died on the cross. And his invitation to us is to take up a cross. Like, like what an absurd invitation. Why would we want to suffer and die on a cross? But, but, but here's the thing. He doesn't want us to die. He wants us to live. Because he didn't stay dead. He defeated death. So we can take up our cross and not die. And even if we die, we live. Because God and his willingness to get his hands dirty becoming lower in order to love and to serve, he shows us that the way of the cross is actually the only real life. And it's an absurd invitation. The way of the cross is foolishness. Paul points that out to the church in Corinth. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. See, Paul gets it. Paul like, like saw all this image of God, this kingdom, this ruling, all of the things. He saw that it takes this downward mobility, this, this lowering of self and becoming a servant to all, not propping ourselves up. This this idea of power under, right? Like, like we're, we're, we don't have power over. Our power comes when we join God in the lowest places, and God is the power there. Right, like Paul experienced suffering. He experienced suffering like for Christ, right? He was imprisoned, he was beaten. But then there's this solidarity that I find with Paul because he had suffered from a thorn in the, what he called a thorn in the flesh or this, this messenger from the adversary. Like it was some sort of disability. Now, after my accident in 2011, I found myself disabled, right? I had a spinal cord injury paralyzed from the waist down and I was struggling in my mind right like I was struggling with what I believed about God there were these dark times I was angry I was grieving this loss that's sitting in front of me all the time right like that grief still cycles sometimes so I find this solidarity with Paul and and asking for healing because as I was processing these things I shared uh, with Fred. Fred had been at our, like, I'd known Fred six months at this point, right? Like, he, he got here in October uh, 2010. My accident was in March 2011. Uh, so thankful that he came here because he walked with me through this. Um, you walked th through me with this. Um, but I shared with Fred uh, one time, I remember, um, that I have... Uh, trouble asking for healing like, I, like I, it made me uncomfortable to ask God for healing and it made me uncomfortable when people prayed for my healing in my presence now I hit it well y'all didn't know this um, but I struggled like in every direction with this theological tension of like like why pray for healing why didn't he just n stop the accident from happening right like, like I, I couldn't like handle the tension I couldn't deal with this and so Fred told me you have to ask for healing. I was like, no, I don't. 
Like, like here, here's my, like, I thought this was noble. Like, I, I'm praying that I can be okay with whatever circumstance I find myself in. Like, if God heals me, cool. If, if, if he doesn't, then I just want God to give me the capacity, the strength to, to be content with the life that I have. Like, how, how noble is that? Come on. Right? And, and I brought up this verse, uh, you know, where Paul, uh, he asks, he pleads with God, for healing three times, and God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. I told Fred, like, I'm good with the answer that God gave Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. And Fred was like, but Paul asked three times. I was like, oh, you got me. <laughs> and so I pray for healing. And I don't know what that healing looks like, right? Like, whether it's me walking again or whether it's just becoming whole, right? Like God, God makes me whole. It doesn't take me back to somewhere I once was. Like, like that might be what, what healing would appear to be. Um, but we're moving forward. And so there's this scene from The Chosen, um, and it gets me every time. So The Chosen, for those of you who don't know, is this uh, TV dramatization of the life of Jesus, his 12 disciples, now, um, there are some creative freedoms t- taken uh, in creating this shot, so you get like the background of the disciples that you don't get in Scripture. So, so you have a lot of stuff that's not in the Scriptures. Not that it couldn't have happened, we just don't know that it happened, right? So, like, what I said to the students, like, when talking about the Chosen is, like, know the story, right? Like, like read your Gospel, know what's Scripture and what's not, so that when you watch it, you understand. Um, so I want to share this scene, and it's one of those not-in-scripture creative could-have-happened. Um, so to set the scene, uh, we're at um, just after this meeting where Jesus sends, out, uh, sends his disciples out uh, in pairs to the surrounding cities, and he tells them to, to teach what I've taught you and to heal, heal the sick. And so Jesus gives them the power to, to go out, heal, to teach, um, and, and that happened. That's in Luke 10. Like, that's scripture. Um, so, so here's where the creative license comes in. One of the disciples is affectionately uh, known uh, as Little James because there's two James. So you have Big James and Little James. So, so Little James walks with a limp and uses a walking stick to get around. And, uh, and so this scene, he approaches Jesus after this meeting, after Jesus had just given him the power to go out and heal um, so, again, this doesn't happen in Scripture, um, but I feel like this could have been Paul in pleading with God for healing, uh, and I feel like this scene, like, like gives uh, some sort of visualis- visualization to what maybe we all go through. So, yeah. I did want to ask you a question, please. You were sending this out with the ability to heal the sick in Yes. So you're telling me that I have the ability to heal What? 
everything will be healed. Every injustice made right, God is renewing all of creation. But the problem I have is the whole human part, right? Like, like it hurts sometimes. Like, like, like being human 
where the reign of sin and death shows up more often than it should. And this grief and this loss and this trauma is so heavy. And, and like we all have our stuff. So there was this, uh, uh, one of the other things that me and Fred worked through was like, I, like I would cycle in my mind through these, these dark thoughts and, and go nowhere. I was like, oh, I just can't get out of it. Like when I, when I get to these places, um, it's like, like, well, what you need is a trigger to snap you out of it. Like, like once you're there, you have this with you so that you can, you can get out uh, of the darkness. You know, just like a, something can trigger you into a, a dark place, like have a trigger to get out of it. Um, and so what I came up with was uh, the incarnation, right? And, and from this new, like, life of, of disability, walking from not walking, I, like, I had this view of this God who became a baby, right? He went from, like, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everything to a baby who couldn't communicate, who couldn't move, who couldn't, like, they, they had to be changed, who had to be fed, that's a pretty big disability. I went from walking. I went from walking to not walking. He went from God to baby. And so my trigger was God disabled Himself for me. And when I and when I shared like like some of these these dark thoughts with the with the counselor and and how how angry I was and how like I, and I was like directing this anger at God and He was like. Yeah, if you're going to direct it at somebody, it's better God than your family because God can take it. And we, and we wrestled. And I yelled at God. And then the counselor said, how do you think God feels about this? And I said, he hates it too. He's, he feels it. He's, he, Feels it like like this God enters in and knows our suffering. So so in these dark places and this and the worst suffering imaginable, it's so amazing. But God somehow does this thing right. Like like there is this strength from a weakness. There is this good from bad. He is this creator of life from nothing of turning death into resurrection. I'm always amazed because joy shows up even in the most tragic suffering imaginable. Like, like joy is there even when sadness is there too. Joy is there even when anger is there too. Joy is there even when weakness is there too. It's this upside down way of the cross that can do things that don't make any sense. Right? This spirit can create life out of death. That same resurrection power is in your veins, you image bearers of God. Like, like you have that Holy Spirit, the power that raised Christ from the dead living in you. And when it hurts, he hates it too. I believe it. Just hold on a little longer. And it's this abundant life like the, the Jesus offers, this, this true life, this invitation to rule with him, it comes when everything else is darkness and death all around us. 
It comes at the cross where it looked like Jesus was defeated. But the way of the cross is actually life, right? He, he defeats death. The cross is actually the only way to be human, right? Like the weakness, the downward mobility, the suffering actually brings us joy, this fruit of the Holy Spirit somehow. And I believe it. It's all going to be healed. All of creation. That's what this table is about. Robin, will you come up? And this, this table, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he sat with his friends at his last Passover meal. Right? So these Passover meals were filled with this imagery and reminders and this story of the Exodus. It's, it's to remind us of what God did for the Israelites, rescuing them, liberating them from slavery in Egypt. And so it's at this meal that Jesus tells his disciples, and, and, and he gives new meaning to this meal. It's still about liberation. It's still about rescue. It's still about blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death passes over. But this is, this is his blood on the doorposts of the whole universe. And death's just going to have to pass over. No more death, no more dying. Jesus knows what's about to happen tomorrow. He knows that this cross, this way of the cross, that if we as image bearers want to be like God, we need to pick up the cross, the way of the cross. It's foolishness. It's an absurd invitation. right? It, it's, it's an invitation to more suffering, not less. But he gives this new meaning to this meal, this Passover meal, and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. This is blood on the doorpost of the universe. Death is going to have to pass over. And so this Jesus' broken body, right? Jesus' blood shed. He does all of this because it's, what are we, man? We're, we're broken bodies. Like, like we come to this table in our brokenness and in our weakness, and somehow it's God's strength. Somehow it's the cross turning death into life. This is the beginning of something new, right? This is a creation narrative of joining God in ruling, right, in his kingdom, bringing about the justice and the beauty and the human flourishing that was the original intent of the garden. Because I read the end of the book, spoiler, spoiler alert, we win. Like, love wins. Like, like, in the end, I believe it. Everything healed. All the injustices, all gone. It happens because of the way of the cross, and we can join God in that, and we come to the table in our brokenness that is our strength. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 